God, all of your word is breathed out by you and is good for us. We pray, Lord, as we come to the book of Malachi over these four weeks that you would speak to your people. You'd build us up as a people who honour Christ, who know the Lord that they serve and follow, who glorify you more and more and know your great love for us. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us here. In Jesus' name we pray it. In his beautiful name. Amen. Um, we're stepping into, as we said, Malachi uh, over these next four weeks. We're doing this as a bit of a pre-Advent series. Uh, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Um, if, if you don't know how to get to it in your Bible, um, but you do know how to get to Matthew, I have wonderful news. Go to Matthew and turn back one page or two pages, depending on whether your Bible has like a little separate page for the New Testament. Uh, and, and you're there. Um, you'll be on the last page of Malachi. You'll have to go two more to get to the first, depending on your, your font size. But uh, yeah, this is the last book of the Old Testament, chronologically last of the prophets. Uh, and so this leads into the big breath uh, before the coming of Jesus into the world. We get to the end of Malachi, and for us, like I said, we turn the page. Uh, and, and there's Jesus. But in history, you have 400 years or so uh, of, of just, in some ways, silence. Not silence historically. Loads of stuff happens in that time. But, but no word in Scripture between the end of Malachi and the beginning of the New Testament. Uh, let me be clear. We're, we're not just doing this because it's seasonal, though. Because it's like, well, we're coming up to Christmas, so we better, better do Malachi, I suppose that makes sense. No, Malachi speaks to us. Malachi speaks to the people of God today in a way that I found to be, as I've dug into it more and more, uh, powerfully relevant and relatable to us, which is surprising in context, right? But it's because there's a certain similarity between us and them, between the situation of the church today and the situation of uh, the Old Testament people of God at the end of the Old Testament. Let me explain what I mean. Um, the Old Testament people of God felt marginalised. Uh, they were tempted to feel forgotten. They felt the world was turning against them, and as a result, they approached their worship of God half-heartedly. The church today, in general, and I suppose particularly in the West, particularly in Australia, let's say, the church today feels marginalised and forgotten, don't we? Like, it appears that the world is radically turning against us, does it not? Uh, and as a result, like I said, in the West, you know, in the rest of the world, ah, it's always been against you. Yeah, but, but in the West, we are in this state where we're beginning to see that the world's coming against Christianity, against the church. And as a result, the worship of God, I would argue, has been at large half-hearted in the church. Let me paint a picture for you here, if, if, if that's not clear enough. In, in 19, uh, 1966, right, 88% of Australians identified as Christians. 88%, so like 12% didn't. You know, that's a fairly small percent right there. By 2016, 52% of Australians identified as Christians. And by 2021, our most recent census, for the first time, less than half of Australians identified as Christians. 
Now, most of you will be thinking in the back of your head, yeah, but that's not actually really how the picture even looks. In fact, the picture is significantly less rosy than that. Although the vast majority reported that they were Christians in the 1950s, for instance, even then, only 44% of Australians regularly attended a church. Um, you know, and, and when I say regularly attended, I don't mean like you were there every Sunday morning. That's like you got there once a month at least. 44%. By 2021, that was just 21% of Australians who were attending church at least monthly, about 13% attending weekly. Now, that's basically the same number as the number who used to identify as not Christians in the 60s, right? 1% off. It's not difficult to see what's changed either. There was a time within living memory, many of us will remember, when it would, I don't actually, but, but when it would have been, um, not have been too difficult to look around at our culture, at Australia, and to conclude that it was a positive thing. It was a blessed thing even uh, in the here and the now to be a Christian uh, as, as far as the world was concerned. Not that long ago, it was considered a broadly positive thing in Australian culture that a person identify as a Christian, even that they attend a church. The church was large, and its influence was large, right? Politically, political parties would spend significant time and resources trying to appeal to the Christian vote. They'd put some work into it uh, because uh, to Christians of different persuasions, different camps of Christianity, because, because pff, that's what politicians do when they think that it's worth getting the vote because there's a lot of people there, right? Speak to anyone who knows anything about the roots of the Australian Labour Party, for instance, and they'll tell you about unions and they'll tell you about the Catholic Church. And, and that's where it all started out. It's shifted from there, if you don't know. There was a, a time when it might have been seen as a thing of integrity and of decency for a person to be a committed Christian. Um, to, to up the ante bit, you know, when the role of pastor might have come with some level of community prestige and honour, even public recognition. Fast forward to today, and the jury's still out. In fact, you know, the, the jury's not out, out, actually, on whether a practising Christian can be the CEO of a footy club in the AFL. You know, a global poll in, in 2021 asked people to rate the trustworthiness of different professions. And 36% of people uh, rated the category of clergy and priests not to be kind of mid-range or, or, or trustworthy, to be categorically untrustworthy. That's a, that's a large amount of people that think that pastors can't be trusted. Not that, not that, eh, not sure. You know, take that to Australia and the, the number was actually 39%. I'm doing more percentages today than I usually do. Uh, pastors were on the whole considered less trustworthy, to put that in context, than civil servants. Oh, my heart. <laughs> Lawyers were more trustworthy. Television news presenters, come on. <laughs> None of whom did very well, as you might have guessed. No offence to lawyers, television news presenters, and civil servants. Lovely people, many of them. have got some good friends in those professions. Uh, well, aside from the television news presenters, they're, they're above me. But, uh, but 
But in short, the, the culture of Australia has gone through a radical change and has pushed Christianity, especially that Christianity which holds to the Bible and to orthodox Christian beliefs taught in the Bible to the fringes. And in the face of all of this, we might be led to wonder whether God knows what's going on down here. And in that position, we share something with the original readers of the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last, like we said, of the books of the Old Testament prophets and was written in a time when the position of God's people in the world had shrunk to such an extent that they wondered whether he still loved them at all. Long gone were the days when Israel was the big dog in the region. Long gone were the glory days of King David. Long gone was the temple of Solomon and the reign of Solomon. In all of its wonder, the era of Solomon and all of the wealth was gone. In fact, I've, I've been reading First Kings recently. Half the wealth of Solomon goes within the first generation of Solomon. The kingdom had been eroded over hundreds and hundreds of years until eventually they were outright invaded, carried off into exile. And by the time of Malachi, a remnant of people have returned from the exile. They've rebuilt a temple of sorts, not like the old one, not big and impressive like the old one. They've rebuilt the city in a way, but everything is smaller. Everything is less impressive. Everything cries out, this wasn't what it was before. The new temple was this bare shadow of the glory of the original. You know, in Ezra and Nehemiah, you get, you get the account of when they lay the foundation stone of the temple and they rejoice and yet the older men weep because they remember what the old one looks like and this is just not it. Far from being a ruling nation, Israel was governed by the Persian Empire, by a godless empire that lacked the true God. No king was on the throne, let alone a Davidic king. In the ancient world, the people of God were marginalised and they were minimised. It would have been easy to look at their situation and think, well, God's forgotten us, hasn't he? Doesn't that seem sort of relatable in context? And you know, the way that they responded is kind of relatable as well. You can, you can narrow it down to kind of two words, apathy and lethargy. These two things, apathy and lethargy, reigned in the approach of God's people to the worship of God. It's not, it's not that they didn't worship him, but as we find in this short book, they did it with half-heartedness. Because if God isn't really blessing us, then what's the point, you know? <clears throat> isn't that relatable? Isn't that what we see in the church today? Isn't there a prevailing attitude in the church today that feels it is a burden to live life for God's glory? It's just too hard. Isn't there a prevailing attitude in the church today that says that it's too difficult, too burdensome to look deeply into the word of God and to trust wholeheartedly what we find there and build our lives on it? And into the apathy and the lethargy of Israel, and indeed into our apathy and lethargy that we can so easily be tempted towards, can't we? Through the prophet Malachi, God speaks a, a word, a message 
of staggering compassion and hope mixed with rebuke. There's a dawn coming. A saviour will come. In fact, the Lord says, I will come down in justice. I will, I will do great things like you have never seen before, he promises. That's where we're going in this series. But let's, let's step, step back to our passage here. And, and considering, considering all of the lethargy and the apathy of Israel, isn't it shocking, isn't it startling uh, and quite unbalancing the way that God begins his address to the people? You know, just, just look away from the Bible for a second. Not a great encouragement for your pastor to give, by the way. But, um, uh, you know, imagine you're in the position of God. I won't say imagine you're God because I don't think we can get there. But... but um, uh, you know, your people have been half-hearted and, and, and not obeying you and, and walking away from being disobedient. Like, we, like we've read here, you know, they're offering blind sacrifices because they're like, well, this one will do because we don't even like it anyway. And, and, and you know, what would you say as your first words to them? You know, you might say, come on, pick up the slack to this lethargic and apathetic generation of Israel. God says, I have loved you. Yeah, doesn't that, doesn't that cut to the heart of the, the issue here? The heart of the doubt, the heart of the apathy, the heart of the lethargy. These people look around. We can tend to look around and go, well, God doesn't love me. God doesn't love his people. And God says, no, my love has been for you. They ask, how have you loved us? This is the structure of Malachi, by the way. God says something, and the people say, what? How's that true? And then Malachi explains. God explains, really. So the people ask, how? How have you loved us? God answers in a bit of an odd way. He says, by defeating your enemies. He says, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Now, um, it's, it's not necessarily how I tell Crystal that I love her on a regular basis. Um, <laughs> do you remember that guy at, at, at the netball last year who was, who was like mean to you? I beat him up. No, um, but, <laughs> but, um, but here's the point. God demonstrated, I never beat a guy up by the way, God demonstrated his love for his people when he defeated their enemies to bring them into the promised land. That's what he's harking back to here. In fact, he doesn't just point to the past. You see there, God says a day is coming when God's people would say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. It's an ongoing love. Isn't isn't this a powerful reminder? God is the God who deals kindly with his people. He loves his people. He comes out to conquer for his people. Isn't that the God that we serve, church? When things seem to go bad, isn't it good to remember God loves us and we're going to see some more of that as we go on here. 
But for the Old Testament people of Israel, there was a big problem right there. Because God said, you know, I've, I've defeated your enemies for you. And there's kind of that tension of, well, why are we in this situation then? And, and, and the issue is that one enemy still remained. The biggest enemy still remained. God's people are still sinful. They've been offering the least and the lowest of their worship to God because their hearts are not fully given to him in worship. Under the old covenant, God's people were to bring their best. They were to bring their firstborn animals and their new fruits. This was the covenantal relationship, the agreement they joined into with God. Uh, these things were to be brought and to be sacrificed to God because he is the provider. He is uh, what they ultimately need. And this, this worship recognized that. But in Malachi's day, they were still sacrificing, but it was the least and the lowest. Hey, it's time to give to God. Well, that one's missing a few legs. It's blind in one eye, mostly blind in the other eye. Let's sacrifice that one. We don't need him. This grain's moisture's too high. As I actually can see mold in there. It's shot with weeds. Let's just take that as our offering to the Lord, our thanks offering, our peace offering. In fact, this isn't just a, a general rebuke. Do you see that? God speaks specifically to one group of people in Israel here. He speaks to the priests. See, the role of a priest is to mediate between God and the people. To offer right sacrifices and to make the people acceptable to God. Right? That's what priests do. To lead them into worshipping him themselves. Through worship. But the very people who were meant to lead the people in wholehearted worship of God are themselves instead leading the way in half-hearted unfaithfulness to him. So God's saying, I have loved you by defeating your enemies, but here's, here's the problem, the greatest enemy still remains. The greatest enemy was not without, the greatest enemy was within. The greatest enemy is the sin that lives in the heart of each one of God's people, in every person, even the priests who were meant to lead the way. The spirit of rebellion, which means that even at our best, on our own, we can only be half-hearted in following God. Rick, you said something about this just before, and I can't remember specifically what it was, but like the priests, they needed saving. Right? Um, and that, you know, we can look at that and go, yeah, didn't they do a terrible job? But the whole point of the priests needing saving is that these are the guys who are given the best shot of following God on their own. You know, they're given everything but the saving grace of Jesus Christ, right? Everything. Like they're brought into covenantal, generous, compassionate relationship with God and, and given all of these ways to deal with sin and stuff, and they can't do it on their own. In fact, by the end, you, you know, you get this repeated refrain in the Gospels when Jesus is being crucified of who's leading the charge there. It's the chief priests and the elders of the people. This is, this is not just true for them, is the point. This is true for us. Our chief enemy is not without, but within. 
It's just, I'm just going to go off the reservation here for a second and say that there are times when we fail to believe that. When, when we, as people who should know better, tend to uh, look around and go, you know what, if just that person over there could be dealt with, if that political movement could be sorted out, then, then I would have a great life and everything would be fine. Um, or if, if, if only you know, the situation around me would be resolved, I'd be perfect. But, but our chief enemy lies within. And in the second half of this passage, from verse 10 through to chapter 2, verse 9, is where we're going up to today, uh, it begins to build this expectation which will continue to grow throughout Malachi. An expectation that there is one coming. That there is a saviour who will come, who will be more than has come before. Who will right the wrongs of the past. Who will be a better one than the ones who came before him. Um, here, actually, that, that expectation begins to build in a negative tone towards the priests. And with an expectation of a better priest who is going to come. There's this longing cry in verse 10. Oh, that there were one. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, among the priests, who would shut the doors of the temple. God's calling for a priest who will shut down false worship and so lead to true worship instead. A priest whose heart is fully given to him is what's needed. Not just that, he says that a day is coming when the name of the God of Israel would be great among the nations. Did you hear that? He says that three times in there, in a few short verses. A great priest was coming who, who led not just a tiny remnant from, from this tiny little area that used to be a bit of a bigger nation, but from a great multitude of people from all of the nations to rightly worship the true God. Not just that, Malachi rebukes again the half-hearted sacrifices of the priests that they've been bringing. In verse 13 and 14, uh, at the same time, he's indicating to us there is a better priest who is coming who will bring a better sacrifice. The ache of this passage is for something that would be fulfilled in Jesus. See, as Malachi rebukes the priests of Israel, even there, his words, they well up with hope, uh, the hope of Jesus. Where those priests were failing, Jesus would succeed and exceed them. He would be the true mediator who leads us into true Worship. The Apostle Paul writes that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for many. Jesus is both the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice. Jesus would cut down the false worship. What, you know, don't we see that visibly in the ministry of Jesus? Like he literally walks into the temple and literally casts out the money changers and the people who are selling dodgy animals for worship there and says, my father's house is a house of prayer. 
the very, very problem here, which Malachi is pointing to again and again, that the priests were offering half-hearted worship. It, that's what Jesus is driving out of the temple that day. Jesus is the great priest who would lead a people from every nation to worship the true God rightly. After he rose, the church of Jesus spread like a wildfire across the face of the earth. You know, like, think about just geographically and, and like maybe numerically as well. Like, at the end of the Old Testament, think about the broadest area that has been covered by the people of God and the narrowest area, which is, well, I suppose that's when they were in exile, but, you know, let's say at the end there is pretty close to it. And then, like, you know, Owen, my eight-year-old son, and I, um, I, I showed him what a study Bible looks like the other day, and he was like, ooh, maps in the back. And, um, and, and we had a look, and, and there was a map that I, I never look at the maps. I, I look them up somewhere else. But, um, but there was a map that was, like, the spread of Christianity in the first two centuries. And, like, at the end of the first century, you've got this circle around the Mediterranean. Like, and, then, and then by the end of the second century, like, basic, basically, Europe's involved. The whole of it, or the vast majority of it. And like it keeps going and going and growing and growing because there is a saviour who came, the better priest who came, who would mediate between God and men and lead people into the worship of his name and lead a great multitude from the nations to fear him and to glorify him. At the heart of the issue, Jesus is the great priest who offers himself as the greater sacrifice. The ransom for many by whom sinners are saved. Church, isn't the good news incredibly good for us? Even better than it was for them. You know, they only saw a shadow. The old covenant community could see God's love in the way that he had protected them from the surrounding nations, sustained them, defeated their enemies. But all this is just the shadow of what was to come. When Jesus came, God overcame the great enemies. When Jesus died, he carried down to the grave Satan, sin, death never again to rule over God's people. So more than them, we should hear the weight of these words and find them as the foundation for how we live. I have loved you, says the Lord. The greatest enemies still stood for them, not so for us. You know, I said before, our enemy lies within, and that's true, but he is a defeated enemy. He's one who there is victory over. We don't tango with sin the same way that they did, because we have a saviour who has dealt with it, and whenever tempted, we can say, no, there is a saviour who has dealt with you, and whenever we fail, we can say, no, I will not be dragged down to this, I repent, I turn back to him. He has dealt with this sin. There is grace for this. Our God has loved us with an everlasting love. It doesn't matter how the culture feels about us. That doesn't change. The great God is for us. 
It doesn't matter if we have prominence in the culture today or if we are sidelined completely. The great king of all is still building his kingdom. He has still called us into his people to be his treasured possession. And so in the truest sense, in the only sense that matters, that matters for all of eternity, we're blessed. We're loved. Those who believe in Jesus are those who are blessed. Yeah, this, this is what the world's always doing, isn't it? It's always trying to say, you know, look how big and look how impressive all of this is, and you guys are just off on the sidelines, right? This is what was happening for the New Testament church, you know, in the Roman Empire, and, and they, they, they found, you know, we feel like we're on the sidelines, we're getting persecuted a bit, and, 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 and John, the, the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, in, in chapters 4 and 5, he, he peels back the curtains of reality, and, and points to the fact that right dead at the centre of everything that ever was, is, will be, is the God who we worship and the worship of his name. And everything will bend in towards him in worship in the end. We're never marginalised. Because we know something bigger than the culture. We know someone bigger than the culture. We're never unloved. Because we've been led into the worship of his name. Even if we lose everything else here, we've gained... As the passage closes, uh, we get one more round of rebuke for the priests. Uh, uh, God holds up the ideal priest, um, a picture that looks forward to Jesus. It's funny, he, he talks about him being Levi, and it's actually not a picture of Levi we get very strongly when we see Levi in the Old Testament. Uh, but it's a picture that ultimately looks forward to Christ. A priest who's going to bring life and bring peace. The priest who walks with God and instructs others in walking with him. That, that element of instruction is really important. Jesus is the priest who instructs others. Jesus, in fact, we read in the New Testament, makes priests. Jesus is, is the priest who is a priest maker. There's a, a real call to action here for us as well. Church, the Apostle Peter writes, You yourselves like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. He's not... Let me finish reading the verse and then I'll say it. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, what he's not doing there is drawing us back into the Old Testament system of worship. And what he's not doing is saying that, that, that you yourselves, pastors... And, and, and ministers are being led to be a holy priesthood, what he's doing is he's talking to the entire church. In fact, he's talking to a whole handful of churches, like a bunch of churches at that point, in a whole region of the world, and to every single Christian, every follower of God, he's saying, you're being built up as priests to offer good, right sacrifices. The sacrifices of God's people aren't sheep, and they aren't grain today. These things ended when Jesus died for us. But the New Testament does call us to be a priesthood who sacrifice. 
Romans 12 appeals to us in the light of the love of God that we see in the gospel, in the light of the fact that Jesus has come and has defeated our greatest enemies and brought us into his kingdoms, kingdom, Romans 12 appeals to us to offer our lives as our sacrifice, living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God in true spiritual worship. Church in Christ, you have an identity as a missionary priest of God. Don't worry, you don't need to wear robes. You've been sent out. We have been sent out. We've been made priests by our great high priest, Jesus. We're sent out as a part of his plan to glorify his name among the nations, to offer your life as a sacrifice, to live in a way that honours him, that shows that he is your deepest joy and so anything else can be lost if it means following him. He is our greatest desire, so nothing else comes first. Church, let's prayerfully, in spiritual dependence, dependence on the spirit, let's reject the lethargy and the apathy that seems to grip so many today. Don't we have a great God? Don't we worship the great King whose name will be feared and glorified among the nations? He said it's going to happen. He'll see it happen. He's seeing it happen even here. Haven't we been led to know the God who has loved us with undying love? Shouldn't that lead us out of apathy and into worship? Maybe, maybe this applies differently to a few of us, depending on where you're at. Maybe for you, this is a challenge to recognise that you have been called to lead others to truly worship God in Jesus. But instead, you've been lethargic and apathetic. Do you remember early on I said that sin doesn't have to define you. It doesn't have to control you. It doesn't have to crush you because there is a saviour who has dealt with it at the cross. Maybe you haven't realised that you've been doing it, but with the way that you live, with the way that you value other things ahead of your relationship with God, ahead of following him, you've shown that you haven't been trusting in his great love for you. You know he loves you. You know he has conquered your sin and your death and Satan's hold on you and yet you've walked like there are other more important things in the world than your relationship with him. Instead of wondering how you might better worship God with every moment of every day and getting excited about doing that, about uh, wondering about whether you could value him with every second, You've been wondering whether it's been worth getting out of bed at all on Sunday mornings. Because, gosh, it's rainy and it's cold and it's awful. I don't know if I really need to go today. Maybe instead of asking what you can give to grow in your relationship with God, you've been treating God like a vending machine that's meant to give you a bit of a spiritual lift once a week. Let me ask you this. What question... Do you implicitly ask when you come to church, does this give me what I want? Or how can I go and serve God here? Now, now, understand, 
not limited to Sunday. I'm giving that as an example. If your following of God is limited to like a couple of hours every week, well, I think we've missed the point, haven't we? Maybe instead of wondering how you might reach your neighbour or your street or that friend or the people that you see down at the sports club or, or, or down at you know, the basketball, the footy or over at the pub, wherever, at the, at the sewing conference, whatever, uh, <laughs> maybe instead of asking how can I reach those people with the good news about Jesus, you've just been wondering when God might get round to blessing you in the ways that you want. Today's a good day to turn to the love of God and just pray, Lord, I know you are so much more than everything else. Be everything to me. And then seek to live in line with that desire. Maybe some of us are a bit different. Maybe, maybe for some of us, we've been striving. We've been trying hard to serve God, but, but we've we can, and, and like this happens to me, we, we, we tend to lose sight of the great high priest Jesus who we are following as we do it. It becomes a, a striving and a toil rather than a joy and a wonder. We lose sight of the one who, who calls us not first to serve, but to be served by him. To understand that he has loved us and he will love us. In fact, he laid himself down for us. Called to experience his love and to be fueled not by cold duty, but by the passion of knowing that he loves me. Today's a good day to step closer to God. To ask that he would remind you of the warmth of his love for you. This week's a good week to take time to stop striving and instead just connect with God. Dive into his word. This isn't given to you as a textbook. It's given to you as a stream of living water. gift. Start bringing your cares and your joys to him in prayer. Come back to the Saviour and just ask him to show you the wonder of your salvation again and the ways that he's loving you even now. And then maybe, maybe some of us just need to receive the love of God. I mean, don't we all? But maybe some of us need to for the first time. To receive the good news that by believing in Jesus, by trusting in his death for you, you can become a child of God. Maybe that's some of us here today. Maybe that's someone listening to this online. I don't know. You can be rescued from the half-heartedness that has the whole world in its grip. That's ruled over you. And you can be given a new heart. Today is a good day to believe and be saved. To trust in Jesus and throw everything else aside and gain so much more than you'll ever lose. Would you pray with me?
Lord, we want to come before you in confession and say there's times when either with our very thoughts or with our actions, we believe that you aren't loving us and haven't been caring for us. And we want to come before you in praise because now we see you have loved us and you will love us. You have given yourself for us. You've conquered our enemies in sin and death. You reign and you care. Help us, Lord, to see the Saviour and to trust in him. Help our unbelief. Lead us to know you. And Lord, lead us to be a people who step into our identity as priests, as those who lead others into relationship with Jesus by the power of the Spirit. Lord, empower us by the Spirit to do this. Lord, if anyone is hearing this and they've never believed, they've never received the love of God, I pray that today would be the day that they could turn and say, Lord, I turn away from all of the things I've been chasing to fill me, to satisfy me, to be my saviour. And I turn to you, Lord, to save me. I trust in your cross to rescue me. I step into the life that Jesus has and gives to me freely. Lord, we pray you would be doing that in our community, bringing people to life in Jesus' name. We pray it in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.